And I came to Louisiana because it's the prison capital of the world. Simply put, they're locking up too many black people. And I came to New Orleans in 2013 to start as a public defender. And I was a public defender for five years and was really exposed to the failings of our criminal legal system, almost as a, as a participant observer. Hey you, this is Takima and welcome to Converge for Change, the business of social justice podcast. Each week we discuss what's really happening on the front lines for racial, social, and economic justice and highlight the amazing grassroots leaders across our communities doing the deep work of freedom. But don't get it twisted. We'll keep the conversation all the way real. Whether you're a fellow justice warrior or looking to better understand what's happening behind the veil, we unpack it here. Who am I, you ask? I'm the owner of Converge, a social justice consulting firm whose purpose is to accelerate the creation of a radically just new world where communities of color thrive. I'm Catherine's granddaughter, a mother of two boys, your East Coast round the way homegirl, and a proud Howard University graduate. Most importantly, I'm a Black woman, a leader in my community, and justice is my legacy. So let's get in this. In our very first episode, you got a chance to meet me, your host, Takima Robinson. If you missed the episode, you can find it on the Converge website. It's www.convergeforchange.com backslash podcasts. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitch. Today, in episode two of Converge for Change, the business of social justice, We are starting a three-part interview series on race, incarceration, and COVID-19. My guest today is Will Snowden, the executive director of the Vera Institute for Justice's New Orleans office. Founded in 1961, Vera grew out of an experiment called the Manhattan Bell Project, which exposed the bell system in New York City that locked people up simply for being poor. Today, Vera continues its mission to drive change to urgently build and improve justice systems that ensure fairness, promote safety, and strengthen communities. In his role as executive director, Will leads Vera's work here in Louisiana, tackling the most pressing injustices of our time from the causes and consequences of mass incarceration, racial disparities, and the loss of public trust in law enforcement, to the unmet needs of the vulnerable, the marginalized, and those harmed by crime and violence. Prior to joining Vera, Will was a public defender for five years, representing New Orleanians in all stages of their case from arraignment to trial. Will also launched the Juror Project in 2017, an initiative aiming to increase the diversity of jury panels while changing and challenging people's perspective of jury duty. Through the Juror Project, Will leads workshops around the country teaching people about the impact that implicit bias, racial anxiety, and stereotyping has on the disparate outcomes we experience in the criminal legal system. Will received his JD from Seton Hall University School of Law and a BS from the University of Minnesota. Hey, y'all, if you're tuning in for your first episode, welcome. We're glad you joined us. We have one rule on this show, though. You've got to be an active listener. I'm going to give you my personal number so you can text me directly. 504-676-5393. I want you to text the phrase QOTD to 504-676-5393. I want to hear from each of you about what you thought about today's show. So send in your QOTD, your question of the day, and let's keep the conversation going. Hey, y'all. I am so excited to introduce my first guest to the Converge for Change Business of Social Justice podcast. So, Will, you and I are paths have crossed in in many different spaces. Um, We work together. I get a chance to do some work directly with you and your your role at Vera, which we're going to talk more about. But most importantly, I call you a friend. So welcome to the show, Will. Thank you so much for having me here, Takima. So before we jump in, um, and folks have heard all about your amazing resume and all the things that you have done um, in our intro, but can you tell tell us one thing about you um, most folks wouldn't know? Um, Most people probably don't know that I play the cello 
And music for me has always been just an important way for me to express myself. And I love telling stories and there's nothing more powerful that I get to participate in than playing the cello and telling a story without words. And I often use cello, playing my cello, performing as an outlet to have a different type of an expression, um, letting people know how I feel, what I'm thinking about, and also what motivates me and allowing the person to listen to the music I'm able to create to inspire uh, their own feelings within their mind and however their ears might receive the message that I'm putting out there. All right. So social justice warrior by day and musician by night. Um, a true Renaissance man. So we're going to talk a little bit this morning um, before we jump into the topic of COVID-19 and how it's impacting the criminal legal system. Um, I do want to sit and recognize kind of what we all um, are experiencing right now across our country. So um, we are recording this um, on Sunday, May 31st. Um, and we are w- waking up to what some folks are calling the American Spring, an uprising um, that in part um, has been spurred by the recent killings of George Floyd in Minneapolis, Ahmaud Aubrey in Brunswick, Georgia, and Breonna Taylor in Louisville. But we know that this uprising has been a long time coming and it's connected to many of the things that um, you and I work on. So first of all, how are you as a black man um, feeling this morning? You know, I try to wake up in the morning with three different things on my mind. I try to ask myself, what am I grateful for? What am I going to let go of? And what am I focusing on? And I try to be very specific with those particular prompts in my mind. And this morning I woke up really grateful for a close group of friends by the name of Jerome Luis, Greg, and Jason. These are all friends of mine from college and have stayed very close together. We're also part of the same fraternity, Kappa Alpha and have really taken these recent months to connect and support each other, not only promoting our physical health, but also our mental health. And so I'm very grateful for the connection and support I've been getting from those brothers. Um, In terms of what I'm letting go of this morning, and we'll probably get into this in a little bit, Uh, letting go of just frustrations with political process uh, in terms of how legislation gets passed, how it gets supported, how it gets killed. Um, And that's an arena that I'm not familiar with, but I've been venturing more into that fight uh, with my work Mm -hmm. with Vera and just letting go of some of those frustrations and really using this moment as a learning opportunity. And then things that I'm focusing on is, is how do we bring justice for George Floyd? What are tangible things that we can be doing to support this moment, to support this movement, um, and doing so in a way that has lasting impacts for our kids to come? Yeah, I think, Will, that's a really important question for all of us to to ask, Um, and especially because not all of us can be out there on the front lines joining the protests, that there are different roles for for all of us to play in this work. And this morning, what I really want to do is talk about the role that you play leading the Vera Institute to bring more justice to our criminal legal system. So why don't we transition there and talk a little bit about what brought you to Vera um, and the work that you are focused on at the Vera Institute of Justice here in New Orleans? Certainly. Um, So I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and my dad is from Eldorado, Arkansas. My mom is from Corning, Iowa. And I went to school in Minnesota. I worked in New York, went to law school in New Jersey. And I came to Louisiana because it's the prison capital of the world. Simply put, they're locking up too many black people. And I came to New Orleans in 2013 to start as a public defender. And I was a public defender for five years and was really exposed to the failings of our criminal legal system, almost as a, as a participant observer, where I could learn what was wrong with our legal system and how poor folks, most of them black and brown folks, were being mistreated. And so I took those five years of experience and and took them to Vera to be the director of the New Orleans office, really with a mindset of how I could be involved in changing the policy that was impacting the people who were coming to the criminal legal system in a positive way. 
And since I've been at Vera, it's been really unique to use my public defender experience to help be in conversations about policy from a practitioner perspective, from somebody who has uh, seen cases play out from beginning to end, but also being a black man in New Orleans, uh, knowing that the policies we're having conversations about have much larger implications and impact than just what goes on in that courtroom. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And as a black man in New Orleans, you know, these are not just things you're fighting for for other folks, but they also directly impact you. Absolutely. Um, since we know that being black in New Orleans means you um, have a much higher likelihood of having an intercount encounter, excuse me, with NOPD. Um, and we know that once we have those encounters, um, we are much more likely to be maimed by that system. So let's talk a little bit about the work of Vera um, as it sort of uh, looks today. So what are the most important sort of issue areas that you are working on at the Vera Institute? Um, and then I want us to talk a little bit about how the pandemic and COVID-19 is shaping that work. So can you talk a little bit about the work of, of Vera and what your sort of high priority agenda items are? You know, since coronavirus uh, hit New Orleans and really hit the country, we've been spending a lot of time and energy focusing on rapid response to try to protect those people that are in our jails and our prisons and in our immigrant detention centers. Because we know what those facilities pose in terms of a threat uh, because they're Petri dishes and mm -hmm. there's no social distancing in these facilities. There's no PPEs in these facilities. And so immediately we were focusing on what were some of the things that we could do right in this moment to help reduce the number of people that would be exposed to the harm of coronavirus in those different facilities? Um, in addition to our kind of rapid response coronavirus work, we're still pushing hard to end what we call money injustice. When we say money injustice, we're talking about the role that money plays in the criminal legal system on the front end with money bail and on the tail end with conviction fines and fees. And really just trying to put a stop to those two practices because it's an extraction of wealth from poor black and brown folks here in the city and really challenging the notion that money shouldn't play a role in the justice that, be, that is being administered in our criminal legal system. So we're working on ending things like money bail, replacing money bail with a system that actually focuses on a person's ability to, um, focuses on a person's potential threat to public safety and not how much they can actually pay to get out of jail, but also ending unnecessary conviction fines and fees uh, because they don't serve an actual purpose in our criminal legal system in terms of promoting public safety. We're also excited to be working on something that we call reshaping prosecution. So Vera has a national reshaping prosecution program that's led by Jami Hodge, and we're really excited to partner with her and her team and her leadership to have conversations in New Orleans about what we should be expecting from a 21st century prosecutor and just getting an understanding of what a prosecutor does. And as we're having conversations about cases like Ahmaud Arbery's case or, or George Floyd's case or okay. Breonna Taylor's case, we have to understand the role of the prosecutor in these outcomes and understand the prosecutor works for us. And if there are certain things that we are expecting from these elected officials, that needs to be known. And to start that conversation, we have to know what authority they have in the first place. Uh, we're also working on looking at the impact restoring jury rights to people with felony convictions would have on our criminal legal system. Uh, last year, or the year before, there was a, a bill introduced by Representative Ted James trying to restore jury rights to people with felony convictions. Mm -hmm. And not enough information was, uh, was established uh, or research done to see what impact that would have. So Vera was asked to do that study. And we're looking at 19 parishes across the state of Louisiana, which roughly represents about 50% of the population to identify the current eligible population of people to serve on a jury and then compare that to the people who have been disenfranchised with felony convictions, and then combining them to see what that new pool would look like. We're also working on a community-supported release program in New Orleans to support people who have been released um, in their pretrial detention phase or in their pretrial phase, understanding that people aren't missing court because they're trying to evade justice or evade prosecution. The three main barriers to showing up to court are just notification, people remembering they have court, transportation, mm -hmm and childcare. So we're working on developing those three things to support people to ensure that they can continue showing up for their case. So I want to kind of bring us back to where we started with the uprising. So many mm -hmm. of the things that you talked about is how do we bring more justice to a 
system, like criminal legal system. Um, and so what you're talking about is what are some practical policy changes that could bring more justice um, to a system that we don't, that we see from the outcomes that we're getting um, is not operating um, in the same way for black and brown people that it operates for uh, the majority of folks in our communities. So what I wanted to, to talk about is so really making the connection between what you're doing at the Vera Institute and what we are hearing in the streets right now in terms of demands for change. Mm -hmm. These things bubble up when we see someone's death filmed before us. Um, but this is the work that you were doing every day to demand more justice out of our DAs, to make sure that more black and brown folks are participating in the judicial process by sitting on juries, that folks before being convicted of a crime are not sitting in jail for months awaiting court appearances and sitting in jail and confined because they can't afford to be released. Um, so, you know, I just want to, I want our audience to make sure that they understand that the work that the Vera Institute was doing before this uprising was really about trying to bring more justice to the system. Um, and the work that, and the demands that they're making right now in the street for accountability of police, accountability of DAs, um, that all of these things are connected. Can you talk a little bit more about how you see the connections and really, you know, the work, how do you connect the work that you do to the demand people are making in the streets today? Yeah, I appreciate you lifting that up. Um, one of the main things that Vera is trying to do is end mass incarceration, right? Return our incarceration levels to what we saw before mass incarceration started in the 1970s. And that's really what brought us to New Orleans in the first place. In 2006, the average monthly jail population was around 6,500 people. Now we're averaging about 1,100 to 1,000. A huge reduction, a huge testament that this size of a city doesn't need that size of a jail. But we think about how there has been this practice of over-incarcerating people, particularly in this city, but also around the country. And that's part of the pain that we've been experiencing, the pain that's being revealed in these moments when we have for decades been over-incarcerated, over-policed, um, over-sentenced to, through our participation and just being in this country, we recognize these problems on a systemic level. When we talk about disparities in the criminal legal system, we can say 67% of the people in uh, the Louisiana State Department of Corrections are black folks. We compare that to disparities in our healthcare. 70% of the people that died at least now, this was a figure from April, 70% of the people that died of coronavirus in Louisiana were black folks, when we only make up 30% of the community. So we think about how these disparities are, are mimicking themselves mm -hmm. uh, in different systems. We can pull figures from the education system to understand that this is a community that has been disenfranchised, that has not been appropriately invested in, has not been appropriately treated, not only by the legal system, but just by being in America we're starting to see that bubble up in this response in Minneapolis and across the country. You know, I, I like to say the way we see each other is the way we treat each other. Mm -hmm. And when I think about how that officer had his knee on George Floyd's neck and just seeing that look of impunity in his face and that callous disregard for that man's life, it, it, it was sickening to me. And we think about how our bodies react to injustice, that anger that people are feeling that not in the back of people's throats, that scratchiness in their stomach, that's our natural human response when we see injustice. Mm -hmm. And when people across this country saw that image, saw that callous disregard for that person's life, we had to express it. We had to take to the streets. We had to demand a system that treats everyone fairly, that recognizes everyone for the humanity that they actually have. And that's one of the core things that the Vera Institute of Justice has been trying to do is restore the sense of human dignity for everybody that comes in contact with the criminal legal system, for survivors of crime, for law enforcement, for everybody that's part of this system, because it isn't just one individual. Right. It is a collaboration of people. And when we can restore the sense of dignity, the source of humanity, the source of under the sense of understanding that, as Brian Stevenson says, we're so much more than the worst thing we've ever done. Then we can have a criminal legal system where we think accountability is something that actually takes place. 
And I love that quote by Brian Stevenson, that we are so much more than the worst thing that we have ever done. But for many Black people, the worst thing they've ever done is be Black. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, many have not even committed a crime. George Floyd was um, assumed to have been writing a bad check. And for that, he lost his life without uh, any due process. <laughs> I, I th- it was either a bad check. I thought maybe he was, they were accusing him of passing a fake $20 bill. Right. Um, but yeah, in, in, in any event, what we're talking in, in about your- is nothing that requires a violent response. Nothing. Nothing, right? Passing fake paper does not require a violent response. And I think part of the problem that we're seeing is people trying to justify illegitimate behavior because of some semblance of a crime that may have been committed. But we don't see that same type of justification in response or that same outrage when different looking people, when white folks show up armed, right, to state capitals protesting for the reopening of a country. There's no question whether or not that person has a gun. But right. when Ahmaud Arbery is running without a gun, people claim he has a gun and therefore that justifies the threat is the argument they're trying to make. Or whenever we hear officers claim that they thought somebody had a gun. So why is it in one instance that when you think somebody has a gun, you feel threatened and justified in trying to shoot that person? But in different instances, like these people protesting at the Capitol, when you know they have the gun, why right. isn't it the same threat? And that's something that we have to unpack with this layered understanding of the role that race plays in this lens and how we are seeing and perceiving each other. And too often these excuses are trying to be made to justify behavior without naming the elephant in the room. And we can ask the question. It's the classic uh, time to kill closing where the lawyer is saying in their argument, now, you know, imagine all these things. And then what if she were white? Mm -hmm. Everyone's like, oh, snap. Because that's challenging the schema in our brains of how we associate certain behavior, certain uh, authority, certain appreciation of the value of a person's life based on their race. Absolutely. That's what this country has been founded upon, white supremacy. Absolutely. And you can't live in this country without these implicit biases, without these explicit biases, without this understanding that this notion of white supremacy has been woven into the fabric of our American flag. And until we start changing the stars on that flag with more color, we will continue to have race problems in this country. So well said, Will. Um, And I think it's so important to remember that these young people out here are not crazy, that they are clear. They are clear that race uh, is the reason why uh, we saw George Floyd die before our eyes. Race was Mm -hmm. the reason why Ahmaud Aubrey's. Killers were allowed to roam free until a video documenting his death surfaced. And then the demands had to come. So, um, you know, all of these things are are connected, Will. Um, and I think what we're seeing in, in the street is folks demanding recognition of their humanity. Right. They are tired of waiting for um, a racist system to recognize their humanity. Um, mm-hmm. So they are demanding that um, in front of us today. Absolutely. So I want to bring us back a little bit to the conversation about uh, COVID-19 and what is happening inside our jails, prisons, and detention centers. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, what the response to the demands that Vera has been making on the system, um, how responses have the DAs been or the Department of Corrections been around those demands, um, and where do you understand that situation to lie right now? Mm-hmm. Um, so in the beginning of March, uh, the Vera Institute of Justice started releasing these kind of guidance briefs in terms of how different actors should respond to coronavirus and the threat it poses to people in our jails, prisons, and and immigrant detention centers. And these guidance briefs were sent to judges, prosecutors, defense attorneys, law enforcement, sheriffs, mayors, um, pretty much anybody under the sun that has some type of leadership position within uh, the criminal legal system to say, hey, here goes the problem. This is what you need to do to best protect these individuals and understanding that prison health is public health and really getting people to understand that we have to be concerned about the people in these facilities because a they're people 
But also, if we want to have a holistic approach of how we contain or flatten the curve of coronavirus, the people in those facilities have to be part of the equation. Um, locally in New Orleans, uh, Vera was involved with working with the public defenders, working with the judges, identifying people on these different judges' dockets to say, hey, here goes a list of people that we want you to consider for release. And there were different qualifications that uh, we used to kind of flag certain folks. And we used the qualifications if you had a bail underneath, set underneath $25,000, if you were over the age of 55, if you had a probation or parole hold, and if you were charged with a nonviolent offense. We created these lists, provided them to the different judges for them to consider releasing those particular individuals. I'm kind of laughing here, Will, because those mm-hmm. sound like things we should probably be doing when we don't have a pandemic. You're not wrong. So <laughs> strategically, what we're trying to do is invalidate some of these assumptions that we've been blindly following for right. quite some time. And, you know, there were you know, judges were on board with some of these recommendations of releasing people. And we also pivoted to have conversations with law enforcement, with the New Orleans Police Department, because it's one thing to be getting people out of the jail, right? Mm-hmm. But that's not achieving anything if you're not stopping people being brought into the jail. Right. So having conversation with the New Orleans Police Department to say, hey, you know, you're arresting this person on this particular misdemeanor. A, do you actually need to bring that person to the jail? B, does it make sense to have this non-socially distant interaction with the New Orleanian if you as the officer are sick or if that New Orleanian is sick? Uh, you're transporting that person in a vehicle. You're taking them to a jail where coronavirus already exists. And so having conversations about, hey, what other practices could be deployed to not only protect New Orleanians, but also protect um, law enforcement to ensure that they have a healthy law uh, healthy police force to be able to respond to the things we need them to respond to. So having those conversations as well in the long-term goal of saying, hey, maybe we shouldn't be arresting people charged with misdemeanors. Maybe we shouldn't be taking people to the jail for these nonviolent offenses. Now we have to have, I just want to pause for a second because I've been saying nonviolent offense and I don't want us to get into this arbitrary, right. um, you know, distinguishing between people that are charged with violent offenses and people that are charged with nonviolent offenses to suggest that people charged with violent offenses in the jail are not worthy of consideration to be released. I do believe they are. I believe everybody is worthy of consideration. The trick is in how we define violent and nonviolent, right? And how, and how do we demonstrate just because you're, you're charged with something doesn't mean that's who you are. Right. Right. And I just want to give folks an example. In New Orleans, this is as uh, from a perspective as being a public defender for five years. Mm-hmm. As we are having this conversation right now, if somebody wanted to go into the 8th District Police Precinct and say, Will Snowden committed an armed robbery on me at, 10, at 11.03 a.m. on Sunday, and this is what he looked like, this is what his beard looks like, this is what his shirt said, they would then take that information. They could take that information to a judge get a warrant for my arrest. Mm-hmm. Even though you and I are having this conversation today right here and now. Right. I get picked up on that warrant. I'm brought to first appearances. I get a $75,000 bail set on me and I'm sitting in jail. Even though I'm factually innocent, I am unable, given this, the way we differentiate between violent and non-violent offenses, you're trying to tell me I shouldn't be considered for release in normal circumstances because we have this stigma around violent offenses. And we haven't had conversations about how we should be addressing violence in the first place. But I just wanted to take that moment to say, just because somebody is labeled with a charge does not mean that that is who they are. And even if they have committed a violent offense, that doesn't mean that there aren't things in place, that there are things that we could put in place to mitigate that harm they might pose to other people in our community. And so we really should be expecting this demonstration by the prosecutors to say, hey, this person is, um, you know, poses this threat to public safety for these reasons. And that's why we're considering we want you, judge, to consider them for detention. But that's not the system we currently have. But in the big scheme of things that Vera is trying to do, certainly working with judges, working with law enforcement, working with mayor, the mayor and city council to say, hey, here's some good things we've been able to do during this particular time. Why not keep them going? Right. And, and, you know, establish a, a new way for our criminal legal system, 
participate in this hard reset that we all need, not only as a city, but as a state and as a country to really create a criminal legal system on the foundation of equity. And I also think, Will, this is an interesting opportunity for us to bring public health into the conversation about our criminal legal issue, right? And it's Mm -hmm. not just public health as we think about this pandemic um, and the threat that it poses to the people in the facility, the people working in the facility, NOPD and everyone else, um, but also public health, to your point, in terms of how we define violence mm. and what our community responds to violence. Maybe violence is a public health issue Absolutely. that we need different types of interventions to um, be able to solve. And, um, and, mm-hmm. and we have to, Takima. We, we have to. We've been, we've been throwing the criminal legal system at problems that we've been throwing a system at problems that don't have solutions for. Absolutely. Mental illness, that's a health issue, not a crime issue. Substance use abuse is a health issue, not a crime issue. If we actually want to be serious about public safety, then we have to think differently on the role our jails and prisons should be playing on public safety because if incarcerating people, if locking them up actually kept us safer, mm-hmm. Louisiana would be the safest place in the country because we have the highest incarceration rate. Mm-hmm. But incarceration doesn't do that. Incarceration takes fathers and mothers from people's homes. It creates children being in classroom, not succeeding in their education because they're worried about their parents who are now in a correctional facility. It shows up in not being able to have the type of home environment that we want to be that, that home base to produce uh, a loving arena, a loving space for people to thrive, right? It has so many ripple effects that we right. can't just focus on this problem in front of us. We have to think about the problem that's creating the problem in the front of us if we want to have any movement. And Will, I think that's the, the question. So is this a system that's about punishment and punishing you for the worst thing you may have ever done in your life? Or is this a system that is about public safety and public health? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this gives us an opportunity to start to to at least introduce this concept of public health and public safety into the dialogue, mm-hmm. um, especially if we know because of this pandemic, we can make some different choices. That's right. Um, so it gives us an opportunity. And, and I want to recognize the fact that we, we have a precedent for responding um, to issues that we could have criminalized with public health responses. And we saw that with the opioid mm-hmm. epidemic, but mm-hmm. that was an epidemic that overly impacted white folks. So we saw a public health response. That's right. So I think both the opioid epidemic, but also how we um, have an opportunity here around COVID-19 to bring this public health lens into our conversation around criminal legal reform. Hopefully this gives us um, a leg to stand on um, in terms of continuing that dialogue post-pandemic. Absolutely. Um, So a little bit, can you, do you have some information for our audience on um, how, Louisiana is managing um, due process in the middle of this pandemic. Um, are folks' rights being um, protected? Are folks getting, um, you know, I know the court systems are closed. So do you know how that is operating and impacting folks who are either waiting trial or mm-hmm. need to be processed through the system because they were arrested during the pandemic? So there's a lot of problems that are being revealed. Um, And I think the main one that's really pertinent to speak of is the way that our criminal legal system is funded. Mm -hmm. Um, So to your point, in terms of due process, there are people being arrested right now that let's say they in normal times would get appointed a public defender. Mm -hmm. Um, And let's say there's two people that are accused of stealing a car. And they both are entitled to a public defender. So one person would get the public defender. And then the second person would get appointed what's called a conflict attorney because there would be a conflict of interest if one lawyer represented both of those people at the same time. So right now, the public defender's office, um, it has a wait list for people that normally would be appointed um, or assigned a conflict attorney. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. We're talking about due process. Due process is not being carried out for those individuals because they just don't have lawyers. Right. So imagine sitting in jail where normally if your lawyer would be able to file a bond reduction motion or file some type of uh, pleadings that would help move your case along or help maybe even consideration for you to be released from pretrial detention, there are people in the jail that just don't have those lawyers. So that's a huge due process violation. But then also when we think about the Louisiana Code of Criminal Procedure, Article 701, talks about the timeline of a case. You know, if you were to file a 701 motion invoking your right to speedy trial and the uh, courts are currently closed, the clock will not be ticking while the courts are closed by executive order towards that um, speedy trial motion. Wow. So that's concerning, right? And unfortunately, we're seeing the problems, at least from the legal system side, uh, you know, return ghosts of the past of what happened during and after Hurricane Katrina, where our courts weren't handling the cases in a way that uh, was allowing due process to be carried out while balancing safety for those people that um, are, you know, are currently experiencing the effects of coronavirus, while also trying to have the courts open up in a responsible way to not create an environment where coronavirus could spread. Right. But simultaneously balancing that against people that are in jail whose cases still need to be heard. Um, There are 844 people in our jail right now. And the courts have been closed for a few months. They're going to be reopening, I believe, on June 1st. And it's going to be a backlog of cases in Orleans Parish because court has not been uh, in session, with the exception of first appearances and some kind of uh, teleconference hearings that the judges have been arranging over the phone. But no, like, substantive motion hearings or trials have been taking place. And so due process is being delayed. There is a delay in jury trials. Um, So when we think about people getting their day in court, they often look at, you know, having their trial, but with the delay of jury trials, there's also a delay in due process. Wow. So I want to talk a little bit more about the issue of eliminating money, bail and other fines and fees. Um, This movement really has started to grow in public understanding and public acceptance. I think um, the conversation is um, at the forefront more than it has been before. So can you talk a little bit about where you all as an organization, where Vera is um, in terms of pushing that conversation? And I know you recently were at the Capitol testifying on a bill related to criminal court fees and fines. So can you share with our audience kind of where we are in um, that journey towards eliminating money um, bail and and what you need folks to know and and possibly do to support that effort. Money bail doesn't keep us safe. And I need people to understand that from jump. The notion that somebody can get out of jail based on how much money they have has absolutely nothing to do with public safety. The keys to the jail shouldn't be the coins in your pocket. If you pose a threat to public safety, there shouldn't be any amount of money that allows you to pose that threat to public safety. At the same time, money bail is keeping people in jail that don't pose a threat to public safety. Uh You know, the Vera Institute of Justice has recently um, published a report just last year and another one in 2017 that demonstrates 30 percent of the people in our jail are there only because they don't have the money to bail out. And so when we think about how that is harming our community when that parent loses their job, when that parent can no longer be at the corner to meet their child getting off of the school bus, when housing is lost, when the elder in their family that they are taking care of is no longer getting that medication. And so money bail doesn't keep us safe. Money bail keeps people in jail unnecessarily. So the Vera Institute of Justice has been working hard to replace money bail with something that more appropriately anchors this idea and assessment of whether or not a person poses a threat to public safety. So that's on the front end in terms of having conversations of money bail and and what we could replace it with. You know, Vera has advanced a plan last year that could be adopted as 
a system that does not use money to decide who is detained pre-trial. And that's our version of ending money bail. Right. On the, on the tail end, in terms of fines and fees, there were two lawsuits from 2018. One was called Kane. The other one was called Caliste, which essentially identified a financial conflict of interest statutorily between the way um, the courts were assessing fines and fees and how those fines and fees supported the operational budget of the courts. And there was uh, legislation that was advanced to essentially change the way that money is routed so that it no longer comes to the criminal court. And when I spoke with the judges, they made it clear that they didn't want the money, right? They, they have been getting full funding from the city since 2018, and they needed to pass this legislation to ensure that that financial conflict of interest no longer existed. I was having conversations about, well, if the courts are getting funding from the city and these fines and fees are no longer needed, why don't we just end them all together? Instead of passing those fines and fees onto the city, why don't we keep that money in the homes of these New Orleanians that are desperately going to need it as we go through a recession, as we're trying to recover our economy? The one thing that you don't want to do is attach a regressive tax on people inhibiting their ability to stimulate the economy by spending that money. So the conversations that we have been happening, and, and there, there is some overlap with the judges. The judges, you know, when I spoke with Judge Landrum Johnson, she says, we don't want the fines and fees. Mm -hmm. uh, we want to make sure that we aren't in this financial conflict of interest. And so trying to figure out how can we keep money in homes that desperately need it and end what we call money injustice as something that I had mentioned earlier because the system is being funded by the city, by the city government, as it's supposed to, in combination with the state government. It should not be funded off the back of the people that are coming through the system. Mm -hmm. Right. This is a, a government that collects taxes. It has certain appropriations that we pay for. And if on one end we are recognizing people coming through the criminal legal system that are too poor to afford an attorney, it makes absolutely zero sense to try to charge them money at the tail end after we've just recognized that they don't have money in the first place. So the conversations that I've been having this week about fines and fees is really trying to use this moment as a hard reset in terms of eliminating fines and fees, the unnecessary ones altogether, because they don't play a role in advancing public safety. They simply are another burden on New Orleanians that have to decide whether or not they're going to pay their court fees versus whether they're going to pay rent. And that's not the type of pressure that we need to be applying to people right now or ever in terms of how we want our criminal legal system to be operated. So you just said a hard reset. And I think that brings us back to where we started our conversation. I think our country is in the midst of a hard reset on a number of issues, but definitely the issue of race and systemic mm -hmm. racism. So we're going to wrap up our interview, but before we do, I have a quick exercise that I want to play with you. Okay. Um, so I'm going to ask you three questions and I want you to simply say the first word that comes to mind. All right. So one word, short answers um, and three questions. You good? Yeah, let's do it. All right. How do you define freedom? Freedom is being unlimited. What inspires you to keep fighting? The hard reality that I could be next. Who is your personal hero? I have uh, an amalgamation of personal heroes. I'm not here before you just the product of one person. I've had amazing women um, to my mother and my grandmother in my life that have poured a lot into me just as much as my father, neighbors and uncles. So that one's hard, but I would say um, collectively I'll answer as family. Family. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It made a thank lot you. of sense just given our relationship for you to be the very first guest on the Converge for Change Business and Social Justice podcast. This has been powerful. This has been informative. Um, and I'm sure my guests um, are going to be 
excited to continue learning and following the work of Vera. So can we, can you tell us where we can continue to stay abreast of the work that you're doing both in Vera and then also the Jura project? Absolutely. Um, our website for Vera is vera.org. Um, I would encourage everybody to, you can send me an email to sign up for our newsletter. Uh, my email is wsnowden at vera.org. That's W-S-N-O-W-D-E-N at vera.org. Uh, to really stay up to date with what we're doing in New Orleans, I'm really excited and proud of the work that we are, are, are building and that we are growing um, as we kind of create this new chapter of Vera in New Orleans. And in terms of the Jur Project, um, I'm on Instagram at Jur Project, J-U-R-O-R-P-R-O-J-E-C-T, um, where we post a lot of our updates on the different things that we're working on, the different things that we're reading, and the different things that we're doing in times of uh, 2020. Thank you so much, Will. Um, we will continue to stay abreast of your amazing work. And thank you for joining us and educating our audience today. Thank Have you so much for having me. All right. Bye-bye. All right, y'all. So now it's time for Code Switch. This is the segment where I recap what we can take away from our interview today. So a couple of things. The first thing is Will and I talked about how everything that we're seeing right now, this uprising really um, is connected to this issue of criminal legal reform and racism. So all of these things are connected. We're talking about people of color who have been historically disenfranchised. um, And that the result of that Um, has been people of color dying disproportionately in this pandemic on top of the ways in which we experience race and racism in our everyday lives. So if anything, COVID-19 has only exacerbated the ways in which folks felt before this pandemic. And this recent wave of Killings by the state um, has only resurfaced the tension in our community. We also talked about Money Bell and really examined the why behind it. Does it make sense to have a criminal legal system that charges the folks coming through that system, the folks coming through that system who are disproportionately black and brown? Is there not an incentive for that system in a capitalistic society to continue to criminalize black and brown people and to literally profit off of their criminalization? And then we talked about public health. So COVID-19 gives us an opportunity to really think about public health, but also how public health intersects with all of our systems, whether they be education or the criminal justice system. Beyond the physical threat that the virus poses to folks in jail, we also understand that some of the reforms that folks like Will are pushing are reforms that our system needs to be considering, whether we have a deadly virus running through our communities or not. Does it make sense to house people for months at a time in jail before they've been convicted of every, if, of anything? Does it make sense to hold people in jail because they are too poor to afford bail. So we have a real opportunity to start to look at these systems um, and to reimagine what a criminal legal system built on an affirmation of each of our humanity and dignity 
looks like, a criminal legal system whose goal is public safety and not punishment. So I want to keep our conversation going and I want you to tell me what your thoughts are on how we might imagine a criminal legal system um, that keeps us all safe and also affirms the humanity and dignity of all of us and does not punish any one person for the worst decision or moment of their lives. So keeping the conversation going, remember to text me at 504-676-5393 and let me know what you think about this question. What does a criminal legal system look like that keeps us safe and does not criminalize people for being who they are? Thanks for joining us this week. Look forward to your thoughts. And remember to text me at 504-676-5393 to keep this conversation going. So that's all for today's show. I appreciate each and every one of you for tuning in today. My hope is that you are walking away with a new understanding of the business of social justice and why people like Will Snowden continue to fight for justice each and every day. A global pandemic does not, cannot, and won't stop our movement. You can follow Will at the Juror Project, at the Juror Project on Instagram. You can also check out his work with the Vera Institute at vera.org, vera.org backslash centers backslash New Orleans. You can also follow Vera on Facebook at Vera Institute of Justice. And you can contact Will directly at W Snowden, W-S-N-O-W-D-E-N at Vera.org. So I am so looking forward to bringing my next guests to the show where we will continue our conversation about race, COVID-19, and incarceration. This will be our second episode in a three-part series. So be sure to check in for that episode to go live. I'll be sitting down to interview two of my closest friends, Fox and Rob Richardson, better known as Fox and Rob Rich. Their story is a story of love, leadership, and a 21-year fight as an incarcerated family. This is one you will not want to miss. Hey, you. Are you following me yet? How else will you be the first to know what's next? You can find all of my podcast episodes on my website, www.convergeforchange.com backslash podcast. Follow me on social media, on Facebook at Converge for Change, on Instagram at I am Takima and at Converge for Change. Be sure to add me to your podcast library on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitch. You can also catch the show live on WBOK1230.com, or if you're in New Orleans, adjust your radio to WBOK1230 AM every Saturday from 1 to 2 PM. And finally, I want to hear from you all week long. Let's really get a conversation going, you and me. You can text me directly at 504-676-5393. See you soon.